Welcome to Earth Riot Radio. I'm Reverend Billy. Come on into the Earth Church. Here we are. How did the Earth become an quote-unquote issue? Issue. Issue. The Earth's not an issue. It never was. How did climate advocacy become a quote-unquote cause? Climate isn't a cause. Not a cause. Never was. The earth is not a protest. The earth is where we are. We live in the climate. We are in it. We breathe it. We eat it. How do we forget that? How do we forget that? How do we, how do we let these people march away with the packages? That's what issue is. It's a package. It's a framing. Cause. Movement. Right and wrong. All of that stuff, that's another way to make a living. Lots of people make very good livings doing nothing at all about what is happening with the earth because they have given over to these packages. They're inside boxes. They're inside categories, inside markets. What's the environmental movement? It's a market with interlocking careers, communal investing. <laughs> the environmental movement has become almost silent. People can't notice it. They can't see it. In this avalanche of white noise that is modern media, something else has to happen. We're going to find out what that is in the next 29 minutes. Somebody, will you, somebody, please, somebody just blurt it out of your body. Oh! <laughs> 
Oh, the Reverend and back again here. Our protesting, we act as if defending the earth is an issue, and our protesting is predictable. But the earth cannot be an issue, and we cannot be protesters. We have to move outside of those stereotypes. So far, we've earned those stereotypes. We've defended the East River Park. That's the main project of the Earth, the earth Church right now. We've defended the East River Park in a predictable way. Rallies, marches, and sometimes we'll gather at the front door of a corrupt politician who uh, arranged for the slaughter of the, of the 1,000 trees. But people see us as they walk by and they say protesters. And as a result, we lose our power. Now, how could we be activists and not resemble the work that we've been doing for years? I say it's the earth itself. The earth has got the answer for us. We just have to turn to the thing that we're defending and say, I'm not just defending you, you're defending me as well. Let's defend the earth together. Now, trees, the more the natural scientists figure out about trees, the more their reports resemble what indigenous people have always said. Earth spirit is in all living things. And trees... Trees are inseparable from the earth and soil, from the, from the wind and the sun. They, one love, like Bob Marley says, they are of the earth. When their branches sweep through the sky, they give oxygen back and take in CO2. And then their instantaneous energy goes to the roots beneath them. And natural scientists are discovering that they have, they have a sense of taste and a sense of smell. And, and they will just keep discovering how complete a living being trees are. Well, now that has got to be the source of our creative activism. So that when the people in uniforms with their guns and their friends with the chainsaws start marching across the park towards us, with the intention of cutting down the tree and putting us in jail, well, we will be doing something that will shock them so much, take them out of their assumptions about who we are and what we're doing so radically. They'll just stop there. They'll be disoriented. They will have to be creative themselves to get back to where they were. If we are the earth... If we have the earth inside of us, if we have thousands of unnamed critters inside of our gut, if we, if we are the earth ourselves, standing there being with our fellow earth, the tree, we will find a way to be so creative that we actively defend life on earth by contacting the life in our assailants, in our aggressors. They have that life in them too. They have the trees in them too. One love. They have got, they suppress it. They try to get rid of it. They feel it, but they're uncomfortable with it. We have to make it live in them so that they walk forward 
This may seem fanciful. This may seem like a miracle. It is. It's evolution. It's the only way we'll move forward together. They'll come to us, and we will walk to them, and we will be in a state of learning together in the natural world. All right. All right. Sounds impossible, but it's evolving. We're walking off that cliff together, and I think we're going to fly. Got my life, my life, my life, this body. I got my body, got my life, my life, my life, this body. I got my body, got my life, my life, my life, this body. I got my body. I got my body. I got my body. Thrill to it, feel to it. Real to it, earth to it, on the earth to it, worth to it, here and there to it, space to it, place to it, do it, do it, do it, do it, thrill to it, feel to it, real to it, earth to it, on the earth to it, worth to it, here and there to it, space to it, place to it, do it, do it, do it, do it, risk to it, kiss to it, been making mistakes. Take it to it, take it, take it, all this faking to it. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Shine to it, cry to it, throw a line to it, sing it to it. Nothing left to do to it, mama to it, papa to it, end game to it. We're flying to planet Mars to it, star space wars to it. Screw to it, pumping fists to it. Humankind to it, make it lie to it. From the natural world, I'm Savitri D. The Squad, a new urban car from an Amsterdam-based startup, is barely bigger than a bicycle. 
parked sideways, up to four of the vehicles can fit in a standard parking spot. The electric two-seater's tiny size is one reason that it doesn't use much energy. And in a typical day of city driving, it can run entirely on power from a solar panel on its own roof. The car is slated to begin production in late 2022 and will be priced at around 6,800 US dollars. The rapidly falling cost of solar power, which dropped 89% over a decade, helps make it feasible to plaster a car with solar cells. Altruism, whether in rodents or humans, is motivated by social bonding and familiarity rather than sympathy or guilt. We have found that the group identity of the distressed rat dramatically influences the neural response and decision to help, revealing the biological mechanism of in-group bias, said study senior author Daniela Kaufer of UC Berkeley. With nativism and conflicts between religious, ethnic, and racial groups on the rise globally, the results suggest that social integration rather than segregation may boost cooperation among humans. A diet rich in fermented food enhances the diversity of gut microbes and decreases molecular signs of inflammation, according to researchers at the Stanford School of Medicine. Eating foods such as yogurt, kefir, fermented cottage cheese, kimchi, and other fermented vegetables, vegetable brine drinks, and kombucha tea led to an increase in overall microbial diversity with stronger effects from larger servings. This is a stunning finding, says Justin Sonnenberg, an associate professor of microbiology and immunology. It provides one of the first examples of how a simple change in diet can reproducibly remodel the microbiota across a cohort of healthy adults. A new study has shown that it is possible to create tiny self-powered swimming robots from just three simple ingredients. By combining oil drops with water containing a detergent-like substance, scientists found they could produce artificial swimmers that are able to swim independently and even harvest energy to recharge. The oil droplets use fluctuating temperature changes in the surrounding environment to store energy and to swim. When cooled, the droplets release thin tail-like threads into the environment. The friction generated between the tails and surrounding fluid pushes the droplet, causing them to move. On heating, the droplets then retract their tails, returning to their original state, and harness the heat from their environment to recharge. The researchers show that the droplets recharge multiple times and are able to swim for periods of up to 12 minutes at a time. In Oregon, the bootleg fire grew to 427 square miles and was just one of numerous fires burning across the drought-stricken U.S. West as new fires popped up or grew rapidly in Oregon and California. There were 70 active large fires and complexes of multiple fires that have burned nearly 1,659 square miles in the U.S., the National Interagency Fire Center said. In southern Oregon, fire crews have dealt with dangerous and extreme fire conditions, including massive fire clouds that rise up to six miles above the blaze. Earlier in the week, firefighters had to retreat after one of these clouds started to collapse, threatening them with strong downdrafts and flying embers. The bootleg fire has destroyed at least 67 homes and 117 outbuildings and flames are surging up to four miles a day. And now the sounds of extinction. The Kawaii bird. The Kawaii is included in the extinct genus of the O'O's, the Moho, within the extinct family Mohedai from the islands of Hawaii. 
It was previously regarded as a member of the Australo-Pacific honey eaters. The bird was endemic to the island of Kauai. It was the last surviving member of the Mohadai, which had originated over 15 to 20 million years prior during the Miocene, with the Kauaios extinction marking the only extinction of an entire avian family in modern times. The bird was among the smallest of the Hawaiian o'os, if not the smallest, at just 7.9 inches in length. The head, wings, and tail were black. The rest of the upper parts were slaty brown, and there was a small tuft of gray feathers under the base of the wing. While the beak and legs were black, the leg feathers were a rich golden yellow. It was the only o known to have eyes with yellow irises. Like other honey eaters, it had a sharp, slightly curved bill for sampling nectar. Its favored nectar sources were Lobelia species and the Ohia lihau tree. The species was additionally observed foraging in lapa lapa trees. It also ate small invertebrates and fruit. The bird was a cavity nester in the thickly forested canyons of Kauai. The species may have become extinct from a large range of problems. Polynesian rats, pigs, and mosquito-transmitted diseases. The final blow was two hurricanes coming within 10 years of each other. They destroyed many of the old trees with cavities and prohibited tree growth when the second hurricane arrived, causing the species to disappear. The bird was last sighted in 1985. And here, the sounds of the Kauaio bird. From so long ago, I can't remember from before I could walk or talk, I was aware that at the end of my grandparents' back lawn, there were towering old pine trees. They were the front edge of a wildness. Beyond them was the forest. Those trees had me spellbound all through my childhood. The branches were like black longboats floating in the sky. One day, when I was six or seven, I was walking away from the house across the grass toward the trees. I walked by the midway point of the yard with a little arch of roses that marked as far as I was allowed to go. But I kept going into the second half of the lawn, stretching toward the roots of the huge old trees. I felt sort of dizzy out there, walking too far, and then I looked up at those branches. It was late in the day. A deep red flaming sunset was coloring everything in different ways. I stopped. It seemed to me that the pine trees were watching the sunset. That's what it felt like. A chill went through me. I was in the early grades, so I was reading children's books with cats and pigs that had opinions and mountains that had bad moods. In my child's world, a big tree could have feelings, certainly, but this was something different. 
These were not lovable humanized animals talking to each other, teaching numbers and letters. I felt that time itself was standing at attention inside the trees. Old giants who knew about life and death and loved the beauty of a day passing into night. A tree is a living thing. We think of a tree's consciousness as authoritative and wise and mysterious. We have sustained much of our human poetry with meditations on arboreal splendor. Our love of forests doesn't keep us from destroying them. We've killed trees like no other living thing. So we better break out of that old sentimentality and create a forest faith that makes action possible. The end of the world answers the question, what will it take to survive? With the answer, whatever it takes, hurry up. Anne and Paul Ehrlich, authors of The Population Bomb, mused on what it would take to avert disaster. Here's the quote. Scientific analysis points curiously toward the need for a quasi-religious transformation of contemporary cultures. End quote. So, what would a forest faith look like? Let's take this on in our clumsy Western way. We're in counterintuitive territory here. Say that trees don't die in the way that we imagine death. Imagine that they decompose, are eaten by fire or bark beetles, by moss and fungi, their ashen molecules pulled into the air by the wind, into the water by rivers and down to the sea, and then up into the cycle of evaporation and precipitation, and back down and around and around. Imagine that nothing is destroyed, finally. What was always here is still here. Imagine that the trees fly into the wind and the water and retain their treeness, their forestness, even as they disintegrate into ever smaller bits of wood. Is this a curious quasi-semi-religious regard for the eternity of the tree's life? I'm a modern man stumbling toward what the old cultures always knew. Yes. Yes? Imagine that the trees go up into the great circles of water and lightning bolts and high winds that travel from an individual tree's death up into the defiance of gravity and the creation of a raging storm, a superstorm, a climate change storm. Climate change. It's a very staid little phrase, isn't it? It doesn't seem so deadly. The phrase itself seems afraid of its own implications. But what could be in that change? Modern science will find out what the storms are really made of someday. Now they are made of our mathematics of vectors and humidity and causes and effects that we can measure. Our forest faith believes that the storms are full of lives that have been lived long ago. Sandy grew to a thousand miles wide and turned left to enter the big city. Like the vengeful resurrection of the world's dead trees. 
In our forest faith, we believe that there are forests inside the storms. The writhing beauty of the roots, the pulsing smiles under the bark, pushing water up into the leaves where the green miracle of photosynthesis takes place. The gentle raking of the skies, invisible gases. All of this is inside the storm that rips off our roofs. We have to imagine that life is there. A storm is a living thing. It may be a nightmare for us. It may cause great sorrow and suffering for us. But it has its own ecstatic, apocalyptic life that we cannot see. The storm, we in the forest faith believe, is having its fit of remembering. It is a great dark cloud, a thousand-mile-wide churning cloud, remembering the forests full of thrashing trees that long for the lives they lived on the land below. Oh, these unprecedented climate change storms, they are full of unappeased forests flying toward their new seed. Imagine that. Tree hugger. I can feel my congregation squirming in the pews, making up a shake-and-bake faith right here. It's foolishness, isn't it? Our forest faith, where trees have souls. This idea asks us to imagine life where we assume there was only a paved, bald, treeless planet. This all comes out of Sandy. We watch the sky trying to reforest miles of high-stress concrete. And where there were forests, well... The trees flew across town. The sadness of the passing of forests is deeper than, deeper than the blues. The commons of our cities are shadows of the clearings of forests. We surround ourselves with forest shapes because we come from them. Spires and curving walls and tall windows. Now, here is a religious instruction for you, amen? After our service today, seek out a tree, say hello, ask the tree for permission to touch it, and let yourself embrace that tree with your whole body. To quote a sexy anthem, don't let go. Hug that tree, children, until it whispers a sweet nothing in your mind, until it is a personality, a treonality. Now that's embarrassing. <laughs> Feel that cynicism coming up? Don't let go. This is important. Put your ear in the bark and listen. To save our own lives, we have to save the tree's life. That means we must remember that this tree is a life. Then we might get back on track saving our own lives. And time to bring this week's Earth Riot Radio to its conclusion. I'm talking to you on behalf of Jason Candler, our editor, and Savitri D from the news from the natural world, and Ross on Roland Kirk. Thank you so much for your music. We have 
the Earth Church tomorrow, Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Come on over. It's in the East Village. All the information is there for you at RevBilly, R-E-V-Billy.com. And we have a feeling that right now it's happening. People are doing a double take and they're saying the climate crisis is happening now as if we were ever in doubt, but it's, it's happening at this moment. And all we can say is, Earth Alleluia, take us with you, Earth. You are the government. You are running things. Take us with you if there's something we can do in this sixth extinction. Everybody, let's just call out to the Earth together.